right, new series, got a new book, looks good. Uh, I don't know if they told you already, but it's free today. That ends tomorrow, it goes up to $72.99, so make sure to go back and get that. It's free, uh, it's really, it's a good deal. Um, we'll be here for four weeks. Now, Jonah is one of the most unique books in the Bible. I mean, this thing is brilliant. Even if you're not a Christian, you don't even believe in God, this is a literary masterpiece. There's nothing like it in the rest of the Bible. Now, unfortunately, we miss out on so much of what it's trying to do because we get caught up on a certain part of this book. If you're familiar with it, you know what part we get caught up on, right? It's the whale thing. There's all these little kids' books, Jonah and the whale. Look at Jonah right there. Help me. Jonah and the big fish. Jonah and the whale. The hard-to-swallow tale of Jonah and the whale. There's maybe more children's book on the book of Jonah than any other story in the Bible. I, I, I don't know, but there's tons. And part of it is we focus on the whale, which is only mentioned in two verses. And by focusing on that, all of a sudden the story is reduced to being a children's story. And Jonah is, in fact, the opposite of a children's story. This is so not a children's story that in, utter, in order to understand it properly, if you have children in the room, fair warning, you might not want them in the room. Serious. Uh, we have to talk about the historical context, and in doing so, we will be talking a little bit about the Assyrian Empire and their brutality. So as you can tell, far from a children's story, the book of Jonah is. Now, if you were to read the book of Jonah and you read it seriously, two things would, would most likely emerge from examining the structure and style of it. First, as I mentioned, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's, it, it's the, just the artistry and storytelling is brilliant. Second, when you look at the style, you'll kind of get this idea that there is some ancient satire going on in the, in the story. This is what I mean by satire, brief definition. The use of humor irony or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices, particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. Jonah is going to use humor, wit, irony, and he's going to do that to ridicule people and ideas that are contemporary to the first readers. He's going to use humor, irony, and wit to kind of poke. And like a good satire should do, it should be sort of teasing you and kind of messing with you and poking at you. And then by the end, you realize the whole story has turned the tables in, on you. And you're the one it's messing with. Jonah wants to jack with your mind. It wants to toy and tease. It wants to poke. One of those brilliant books, most unique books in the Bible. Let's dig in. <clears throat> now... The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord the Lord. That's the first three verses, but there's tons going on. So I just want to go verse by verse for the first three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, so Lord is all in capitals here. So this is the Hebrew name of God in the old Testament, Yahweh. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah, 
Now, Jonah, like all Jewish names in the Old Testament, it means something. It's a Hebrew word. And Jonah means dove. Now, dove. Think about the Bible and think about the biblical stories. What comes to mind when you think of dove? Holy Spirit. The first time uh, you might picture a bird or a dove is Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. It says, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Some of the ancient Jewish rabbis said the spirit was fluttering like a dove above the waters. Then the next scene, big one with the dove in it, what do you think? Flood story, Noah. Noah sends out a dove, comes back with a branch. And again, you picture the dove hovering over the waters and the dove brings back a branch. And that branch symbolizes peace. And therefore, even to this day, we talk about offering an olive branch, a way to say, let's restore our relationship, let's reconcile our relationship. Look, I know I sucker punched you. I'll own up to 20% of that. Your fault, 80%. Here's my olive branch. Take it or leave it. (laughs) And then there's a dove with, as people mentioned, Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes down in the Gospels like a dove, and it's hovering over the waters, and then God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So the dove has like this symbolic significance in the Bible. It means peace, means restoration, renewal, reconciliation. So at the beginning of our story, we're introduced to a man named the dove. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the dove, son of Amittai. Amittai His father, uh, his name means like truthfulness or faithful one. So our story begins with the word of Yahweh coming to the prophet named the dove, son of the faithful one, which is already kind of trying to do something to you. Because if you understand the book of Jonah, you understand that the story begins and ends not with obedience, but with disobedience. Jonah's not a good, like a good dude in the story. When you reduce it to a children's story, it may seem like he's a faithful man who gets stuck in a whale and he prays to God and then he faithfully goes and preaches. Jonah's a much more complicated character than that. Much more complicated. And so the story is kind of like, let me tell you a story about Jonah, the dove, son of the faithful one. We're introduced to Jonah, by the way, in the, in the Old Testament. He was a prophet who preached to a king in the Old Testament. Verse two, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the dove is being sent to Nineveh. Now Nineveh, a very, very popular city. This is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And to the first readers of the book of Jonah, Assyria is, is bad. It's like the empire in Star Wars, like Darth Vader, Darth Sidious, stormtroopers. It is bad, extremely bad. The ancient world, the empires are known for being brutal. I mean, that's how you seize powers, is through military power and might and victory. And so you, you, you do that through violence and brutality. But even among all the sort of brutal empires, the Assyrians are even known as like the most brutal. So even the violent people are like, oh man, we're messed up, but you know, we're not as jacked up as them. You ever do that? Look, I know I got my problems, but dude, Drew Dollar, oh my gosh, man, that guy. 
It's wicked. It's wicked. By the way, there was a use of satire earlier in service. Did you catch it? Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Oh, he's gone. I'll save it for later when he walks in. It's a a joke on Greg, but he's not in. I'll wait for him to come back. So if you were to think of the worst of the worst, and you're the first reader of the book of Jonah, you think of the Assyrians, really bad dudes. Um, If you look at people's art, you can kind of tell what their culture is about. So you look at some people in some time periods, and all the art is about romance. You know, man, these people really cared about romance. Uh, You could look at some art and say, these people were religious. All of their art has to do with their religion. It's all about that. If you look at our culture, go, man, all of these people's art is, is them taking pictures of themselves trying to look better than they actually look in real life. So you can see that what we care about is looking good. You get that? That's what we care about. Our culture cares about looking good. Assyrian art is filled with violence, brutality, torture, and war. And so I'll show you some examples, and they're rough. These are the Assyrian reliefs. They depict the military might of King Sennacherib of Assyria defeating Jewish armies in a town, in a city, a military city called Lachish. And after his victory, Sennacherib says, man, I gotta commemorate my victory. So I want my palace lined with these big giant reliefs. They're six feet tall and they would stretch across the room and they would depict his victory. Here's one image from it. This is the forces of Sennacherib impaling Jewish soldiers. It's a giant pole, you're stabbed from the bottom up and you're held and propped up so that everyone could see you as you die a slow, painful, miserable death. It's like, think about that. Oh, what do you think would look good in the office? Well, that's what I want commissioned for my office. I mean, that's, that's what the culture is about. These are men being suspended. Uh, the Assyrians would skin people alive and they had a sport and who could keep the victim alive the longest after the skinning. And they would bring other people from the town, other men, women, and children to watch the leaders of the town go through this suffering. This is a picture of Sennacherib. Uh, There's an inscription that says, you know, I am king of the world, king of kings, and he brags about his military conquest and victories. It's brutal, brutal culture. It's the empire of Star Wars. It's the bad guys. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Because God wants to send his dove with an olive branch to the people of Nineveh, and that should be poking at you. Ah, not them. No, no, not them. Why, 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 why would God offer a dove with an olive branch? Why is God sending Jonah, his prophet, to tell them they are wicked and then offer them mercy and forgiveness if they repent? I mean, think about this. Put it in your modern context. Let's go back to the last hundred years. Think about God calling you and saying, go to the communists, go to their gulags and pronounce guilt upon them and tell them that the Lord wants to reconcile with them. Or think about going in Berlin in World War II areas and condemning the third right guilty, but saying, if you repent to this day, God will show you mercy. Or going back five years to an ISIS stronghold and saying, guys, Jesus is the Messiah. Who wants to do that? None of us do. 
We don't want to do that. But this is exactly what God is doing. He's sending his prophet, Yonah, the dove, son of the faithful one, to give them a message. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went down into it to go with, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah does sort of like what you or I would do. I ain't going there. I ain't going to Nineveh. Lord, do you know what they'll do to me? Have you seen their pictures? Have you seen, have you seen their art? Do you know what they'll do to me? Lord, how about I send an email? That would be much more safe. And then you could t- I'll say whatever you want me to say. As long as it goes from your email address, not mine. Okay. So Jonah flees. He doesn't want to do it. Now, the scandalous thing, though, of this, this story is we're not going to get into it much today. But you think he doesn't do it because he's afraid. I wouldn't do it because I'm afraid. I ain't going to go down there. But Jonah doesn't disobey God because he's afraid. He has different motives. He has different motives. So for now, all we know that Jonah is being disobedient and he goes down to Joppa and gets into a boat. Now, one of the interesting that the story is doing is it's going to use this language of down, 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 down to communicate what's occurring. So Jonah goes down into Joppa then he'll go down to the boat, and a little bit you're going to see he goes down into the bottom part of the boat, and then if you know the story, he goes down into the ocean, and then as he's going down into the ocean, he's going to go down into the belly of the beast, the whale. So Jonah, in his disobedience, is going down, 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 all the way till he hits rock bottom, or we'll should say ocean bottom. Down, 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 down. To give you an idea of the geography involved, If you look on the right, you'll see Joppa and Nineveh. Jonah is near Joppa. That's the port city. And God tells him, you go up to to Nineveh. It's about 500 miles. What does Jonah do? He gets on a boat and goes to Tarshish. How far far is that? 2,500 miles. Have you ever rode in a car for 2,500 miles? It's like you get out after that long, you know? And however, whatever the arc of your seat was, that's how your back works for the next seven months. It's going to go on a boat in the ancient world for 2,500 miles. Now, if you notice, this goes all the way to Tarshish. That's Spain, which is the coast of the farthest place the ancient mind would imagine. Think of like the four corners of the earth. The coast of Spain is the literal end of the world for this guy. So you see what's going on. Jonah is going to go to the end of the world in order that he might obey, may disobey God. Going to go to the end of the world in order to disobey God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to their God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. And there's some 
interesting things going on here. It says uh, right before verse five, the ship threatened to break up. Like, how does the boat threaten to break? I'm gonna break up. Uh, the word is hashav here in Hebrew, and it means to threaten or more like to consider or to ponder. So the boat is being personified. It's giving human-like characteristics. The boat, is, the boat knows something's wrong, in other words. The boat knows like some god or goddess, or if it's a believing boat, the one true god of Israel. But you're supposed to picture this boat as like wrestling. Dude, I'm just going to break up. I'm going to kill all you guys, and I'm out of here. It's like, I'm not, I'm not staying here. The boat is, is considering, threatening to break up. And the mariners were afraid. The sailors are terrified. So what do they do? They cry out to their gods. They're polytheists. They believe in multiple gods. And so they're going to try to figure out why is a god or goddess angry with us? What do we have to do, what do, we have to, do to appease their wrath? And so cry out to this god. Cry out to my god. I'm from this region. I'll cry out to the god of my region. And the storm keeps going on. So then... They do what any of us would do. We gotta start chucking stuff out. We gotta get rid of stuff. Do the stuff we don't need first. Like, like get rid of this, get rid of this. Oh, no, not the beef jerky. Nah, not the, nah. It's like you keep throwing it, and still nothing stops the storm. Then lastly, it says, all while this is going down, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, down to the bottom, the inner part, and had laid down and was fast asleep. Does this remind you of something? Is there another story where someone is asleep in the bottom of the boat and a storm breaks out and people are crying out for salvation? And Jonah, the sailors are crying out to their gods. There's another story in the Bible where God himself is in a boat to quiet the storm and he's asleep at the bottom. Some for another time. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. All right, Jonah, we've tried our gods. We tried all of them. You try yours. It's it's our last hope because some God or goddess is angry with us. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. They're going to cast lots. This is like the ancient form of rolling dice or... You know where you put a bunch of straws in your hand and one straw draws the short straw and whoever draws that, you say, go home, we don't like you type of thing. Same thing. They cast lots and it lands on Jonah. In verse eight, they said to him, tell us whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you (coughs) come from? Excuse me. What is your country and of what people are you? So we need to know more about you. Who is your God? Where is your from? Maybe we could solve this puzzle on why we're all about to die. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. All right. They know Jonah's the reason why there's a storm. Jonah is the reason why their lives are being threatened. Jonah's running from God. It's his fault. Now, you put yourself in the story, which, you sh- which as a reader, kind of that's what the stories want us to do sometimes. What do you do? 
what do you do? You find out Jonah is running from his God. I'm chucking him over. I'm throwing Jonah over. I'm keeping my beef jerky. Jonah's getting tossed. I'm not even hesitating. As soon as he said, I am fleeing from the Lord, I am a heat. I don't care who. Get him over, man. His boat's threatening to break itself up. Let's get him over. But what happens? Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great temptus has come upon you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Jonah's sneaking in behind you. He's subverting your expectations. This is a story about a Jewish prophet who gets a word from the Lord. Who should be the good guy? Jonah. And when the storm breaks out, what should happen? The story should go something like this. Jonah confessed that it was his fault, but being the righteous man that Jonah was, he said, throw me overboard. And the evil godless men with their godless hand beat Jonah up and threw him into the sea. And as Jonah was falling from the boat, he said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he fell into the safety of a whale's mouth. Jonah is disobedient He says, throw me over. What do the pagan Gentile sailors do? They row all the harder. Even though they have a guilty man on board, they don't immediately chuck him over, which you or I would have done. They try to save his life. They should be the bad guys in the story. Jonah should be the good guy. But all of a sudden, this story is sneaking behind you. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's not the way this is going to work. Therefore, they called out to, Lord is in capitals here, they called out to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. Oh, Yahweh, have done as you please. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea, the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. They feared him exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, Yahweh, and made vows. Get how profound this is. The pagans, the Gentiles, and what are they? They're sailors. When you picture, you're not supposed to picture the most morally upright guys. The pagan Gentile sailors are left praising, fearing, sacrificing, and making vows to Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's not what you would expect. Jonah, the dove, son of the faithful one who is sent to Nineveh, is in rebellion And the Gentile pagan sailors are now having the name of Yahweh upon their lips. And they did their best to care for the man at first, too. Like the the people who you'd expect to care don't care, and the people who you don't expect to care do care. Which should remind you of another story later on. 
There's a story in the Bible where someone's life's in danger and the people who you think should care and help don't and the people you'd least expect to care and help does. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. It's like flipping everything upside down. Everything's inside out. Sneaking in behind you and just poking at your expectations. And then the famous part. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is the setup for the rest of the book of Jonah. This is the setup. What I'd like to do is is focus just week one on this idea of disobedience. Because Jonah is a prophet. He's the believer. But he finds himself in disobedience. In other words, you could be a prophet of God and be in disobedience. Or you could be a Christian and be in disobedience. Or you could be a churchgoer. Or you could be a Christian churchgoer who's on church on Sunday morning and be in disobedience. And disobedience equates to running from God. It's funny how God could call us into something or call us to give up something. And rather than give it up, we run. We defy, we be disobedient. We cling to our idols. I mean, think about this. Jonah is being called into, I mean, yes, it's a, da- it's a dangerous mission, for sure, for sure. But you know, Han Solo and Luke, they still went to go save Leia, and they came out okay. It's a dangerous mission, big time dangerous. But if you succeed, Jonah would be a part of one of history's greatest renewal and revival movements ever to be recorded. If Jonah obeys God and all of Nineveh would repent, this has the potential to be a movement of God that even the wildest dreamers could never dream up. But he clings to his reality, his understanding of the world, his understanding of the way he thinks the world ought to function. He clings to that and runs from God. And how far does he run? To the end of the world. Which, by the way, is some of the stories represented in this room. Right? Some of you ran to the end of the world to escape God. And you had to hit ocean bottom, rock bottom, to finally submit yourself. Because the truth is, you can run to the end of the world. It don't matter. There's an inescapability to the presence of God. You can run to the end of the world, and he's going to get you. Some of you who are old school, there's a Keith Green song that says, you can run to the end of the highway, still not find what you're looking for. God sees your disobedience, and he comes after you. The psalmist sings of this. He sings of it. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, if I ascend to heaven, the highest of highs, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead. If I make my bed in hell, Sheol, the place of the dead, you're there too. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You can go to the highest high or the lowest low, it doesn't matter. There's an inescapability to the presence of God. And you can run and run and run and run, but he'll go to the end of the world to get you. And you might find yourself 
in the lowest of low, in the belly of the beast, in the belly of the well, being dragged back to Nineveh. And the beautiful thing about it is that that really is some of our stories. You can't run. His presence will find you. It's going to be there, knocking, convicting, saying, come this way, be obedient. So what's the, the, the message? Like, stop running. Sometimes people spend their whole lives running from God. Sometimes people who don't even believe in God spend their whole lives running from a God they supposedly don't believe in. Sometimes Christians run from greater obedience because they don't want to give something up. They don't want to be obedient. They don't want to give that idol over. They want to cling to it and clutch it. You've got to stop running. Now, that's difficult because obedience uh, is not a good word. Like, I'm saying, like, we all need to be more obedient. And no, like, positive images come to our mind. Like, yes, I want to be more obedient. Like, we send dogs to obedient school. No one wants to be in obedient school. That sounds miserable. Obedience has, like, this negative feel to it. But in the Bible, obedience doesn't function like that. Obedience is life-giving. As you become more and more obedient to God, you think it's going to make your life worse because you're giving up this, 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 or that. But in reality, your soul will flourish the more obedience you demonstrate. The more of your life you give up, the more life you find. Or as a later prophet would say, in losing your life, you might find life. And in clinging to your life, you might lose it. So Jonah is teaching us about obedience and not running from God. And there's going to be a host of other things in there too. This book is brilliant. It's going to mess with us the whole way through. And finally, when you think you've reached its conclusion, it's going to turn the tables one last time on you. Now, Jonah is the prophet sent to a people that no one would want to save. No one would want to save the Ninevites. No one would want to send the Assyrians. So it's understandable that Jonah disobeys. Like, we relate to that. I get it. I'm, I'm with Jonah. I'm going, to, I'm going to Tarshish, man. I ain't going to Nineveh. This story is similar to another story, though, because hundreds of years later, after the story of Jonah is told, there's another prophet sent by God, the most true prophet, the prophet of prophets. And this prophet is said to be God's son, and this prophet is sent to the worst possible people. Man, you thought the Ninevites were bad? Bro, dude. The Ninevites, God's truest prophet, the prophet of prophets, his true son, is sent to a, a wicked, vile, cruel bunch. They are some of the most wealthy, well-off people to ever live, but they spend the majority of their time and resources and money on themselves. They have kids. They have kids. And these kids want attention from their parents. And their parents spend the majority of their time mesmerized by illuminating pixels on digital devices. Man, these people are unfaithful in their marriages. They're unfaithful in their friendships. They're unfaithful to each other. They're full of anger. They're quick to outrage. They complain and critique everything in the world except themselves. No one would want to save these people. But these people look a lot like you and I. And so Jesus is sent 
to the worst, to die for sinners like you and me. He is God's true dove, God's true prophet, God's true voice. And he goes where no one would want to go. Who wants to go to Nineveh? Who wants to go to the cross? And so Jonah, in disobedience, goes down, 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 down. The final and true prophet, in obedience and faithfulness, goes down, 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 down. Paul the Apostle, hundreds of years after the book of Jonah, describes this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see this, Jonah is disobedient and goes down, down, down. The son of God in faithfulness goes down. He leaves first his kingdom, where he's king of kings, lord of lords, reigning in glory, and he comes to earth. And that's bad enough, but he doesn't do what you or I would have done, because if I come to earth and I'm the true king, I'm announcing it with tons of angels. I'm letting everyone know I'm the king. Get down and worship me. You can do it now or on judgment day, so let's just start it. But he goes down, and he doesn't just go down. He empties himself And then he becomes in the likeness of men. The very vile, rotten people he is going to save, he adopts their likeness. And if that's not far down enough, then it says he becomes a servant. The Greek word here is doulos. could be translated slave. So he goes from heaven to earth to the likeness of men to being a servant. And then it says he goes down to the most furthest place imaginable, to death, death itself. And that should be the end of it, but the author takes you even further down, not to the bottom of the ocean, but to the bottom of the ocean in the belly of the beast. He takes you to the cross. He goes and becomes obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. And Jesus descends to rock bottom, the bottom of all bottoms, a Roman cross and dies in order that people like you and me and Ninevites might be offered a dove, an olive branch, a chance to repent and have renewal and reconciliation. Now, when you realize what God has done for you, obedience isn't a burden. You ever try to be obedient to someone you don't like? That's difficult. But when you realize and you begin to love and honor and cherish the one whom you're called to be obedient to, it flows from you. I don't want to be faithful to my wife because, oh man, I gotta be faithful to my wife, I gotta be a good husband. I want to do it because she's worthy of having me be a good husband. She is good, she is beautiful and kind. She's worthy of that. But Jesus is the faithful spouse, the faithful husband who is worthy and deserving. And when you set your affections upon him, you will want to be more and more obedient. Doesn't mean it's easy, but your desires will change. And so what I ask you today 
as we begin this kind of journey in, in Jonah, is there areas of disobedience in your life or a single area of disobedience, something that you're holding on to? Because you could be a Christian, you can be a prophet of God and still be clinging to some type of disobedience, some sin, some idol. What is it? For some of you, it may be a small thing, like, man, I know I'm supposed to do this. For some of you, it may be a big deal. It may be as big of a deal as going to Nineveh. But in losing that part of your life, you will find true life and your soul will flourish. The ushers can pass out communion. Jesus has this descent, but then it's mirrored by the inverse and the opposite of his ascent. Because he went from heaven to earth to service to human likeness to death to death on a cross... Paul continues and says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus goes down, God raises him back up. He raises him back up. And now he's at the highest of all possible highs because there is nothing higher than the name of Jesus. And because of that, when we understand what he's done on our behalf, we can begin to have our hearts desire obedience. So reflect as communion is being passed out on what areas of your life need to be brought into greater obedience. Where are you running from God? Where are you hiding from God? Communion is something Christians take. It's a meal that Jesus gave us. And so uh, if you're not a Christian, you're just checking things out. You don't feel obligated to take it. It's not awkward or anything like that. But this is something we do. We do it every Sunday to remember what Christ has done on our behalf. Please stand as we take communion. Jesus, in his obedience, goes down to Sheol, the place of the dead, to the belly of the well, the belly of the beast, to a Roman cross. And Jesus tells us on the night that he was betrayed that the bread is his body broken for you. As you take this, remember his sacrifice on your behalf. Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. When you take this, you are to proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. So this is our pledge of allegiance to proclaim his descent to the cross, his death, and then his ascent in resurrection and ascension. And we believe he will one day return in power and glory. And so Lord, we proclaim this truth. In a moment, I'll close in prayer. If um, there's anything that God is working on your heart with, you're feeling convicted about, we'll have our prayer team and leaders up front. You could come up after service for that. Father God, we thank you for your son, the true king, the true prophet. 
your true son. Thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. I pray that your spirit, like a dove, would work in our lives, bringing us peace, but not only peace, conviction, so that we can walk in greater and greater obedience to you. Lord, we love you, increase our desire and affections for you, and may we walk in your truth. Grant us wisdom and discernment as we go through the rest of the book in Jonah and have it continue to convict us and challenge us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You all have a great day walking in greater and greater obedience to your Lord.